Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 108 of Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where, with my good friend and colleague Matt Kelly, we take a deep dive, literally going into the weeds, to take on a compliance or compliance-related topic. But before we get to today's topic, have you ever wanted to start your own podcast? As you may know, I've expanded the Compliance Podcast Network, and I'm now taking on podcasts from others. So if this is something you've ever wanted to do but didn't really know how to get started, listen to a message from today's sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. Today's podcast, Matt and I consider the Polycom FCPA enforcement action from late December 2018 as an exploration of the different challenges around distributors and anti-corruption compliance programs. Matt wrote about this in a blog post for Navex Global's Ethics and Compliance Matters entitled Distributors FCPA and Internal Controls Lessons for Anti-Bribery and Corruption Programs. It's a deep dive into the Polycom enforcement action and what the lessons learned are for the compliance practitioner going forward. I know you will find it both enjoyable and useful. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back with Matt Kelly, not only the coolest guy in compliance, but also the founder and editor of Radical Compliance for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we take a look at uh, a blog post Matt wrote for uh, Navex Global's Ethics and Compliance Matters blog entitled Distributors, FCPA, and Internal Controls, Lessons for Anti-Bribery and Anti-Corruption Programs. It was uh, at least... uh, perhaps inspired by a most recent FCPA case, but it really highlights several very difficult problems around the distributor sales model in the FCPA context, which we saw several cases in 2018. So Matt, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, uh, welcome and uh, tell uh, tell the fans uh, what Boston's like today. Uh, Hello, Tom. Thank you very much. Um, I think that, you know, certainly the Patriots fans here in Boston are quite pleased. Um, I did see a very funny graphic uh, earlier last week, just before the playoff games, depicting various parts of the country and whether they supported the Patriots or the Kansas City Chiefs. And of course, the entire country was the Chiefs logo, except for New England, which was the Patriots logo. Um, I just want to go on record. I've been a Patriots fan my whole life, including in the 80s and 90s when they totally stunk. So I'm allowed to be a fan now. I am not a fair weather, late to the, the, the cause sort of a fan out there. Uh, I don't know that we will win the Super Bowl in two weeks, but uh, people are optimistic here. Well, it should be uh, should be a really good game. And uh, uh, Tom Brady was the most Tom Brady-like he'd been since uh, perhaps the last Super Bowl when he threw uh, for 500 good. yards and lost. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, at any rate, uh, your blog post, uh, kind of what caused you to take a look at this and you want to maybe, uh, uh, start us off on it. Yeah. Well, so this post, um, a couple of things were catching my eye lately about FCPA enforcement actions, um, was number one, 
I like you can't overlook the fact that the SEC, when it is settling cases now, is imposing monetary penalties. And we don't really see much of that anymore from the Justice Department on the criminal side. Uh, because the department is adopting these new policies about being more forgiving if the company will step forward and remediate, cooperate, all that stuff. But on the SEC side, we are still seeing not only disgorgement of ill-gotten profits, but also a monetary fine on top of that. Uh, these are not necessarily huge fines in the relative scheme of things, but they're fines. And that's different than the Justice Department. So I, for the last half of 2018, I was like, huh, that's interesting. But then when you look at a lot of these cases uh, involving internal controls to the point where uh, a fine is levied, they inevitably involve not just third parties, because how many of them don't involve third parties, but specifically they're involving distributors or occasionally resellers who are somehow subverting the internal control to create a bribe. And I we saw that with the Polycom case that was settled in December. We saw that with the Sanofi case that was settled, I want to say, in September. Um, but this also goes back for years. You have seen distributors be the, the bane of the company's existence that the SEC gets in your face over an internal controls violation of the FCC, of the uh, FCPA, and hits you with the fine. So I just wanted to noodle on that with this post and be like, why is that? What is the nature of this relationship with distributors? What would good accounting controls be for that kind of relationship? And what are the points people should think? But that that's where that post came from. So the um, I guess certainly when I read it, Ben, I thought of the, the most recent uh, FCPA enforcement action involving distrib- distributors, and that was Polycom, which came out mm-hmm. Uh, actually, the week of Christmas 2018, and it, uh, Polycom had a set of facts that um, perhaps a little bit unusual, but nevertheless, uh, if there was an instance where it was extraordinarily difficult to detect a uh, fraud or a bribery scheme, when you have a complete off-the-book system by the entire business unit, not only for financial reporting, but also communications, whether that be uh, email, uh, uh, instant messaging, or some other system, it's uh, pretty difficult for the home office in the United States to, if not detect, prevent that type of behavior. I agree, and I'm not saying that this situation is easy for compliance officers to resolve. However, you got to figure out some way to resolve it because this was a really difficult set of facts, as you said, Tom, with Polycom. Um, there were China employees of Polycom collaborating with their distributors and resellers to create these bribes. Um, so it's not even just some distributor going off the reservation. Like This was active, deliberate collaboration between the two. And they did this with an entirely separate shadow IT system. So, yes, number one, that's really hard. Number two, so what? Because it's not like these problems are going to go away. I kind of like the Polycom example because it shows a really hard set of facts that it will be easier for those with deliberate intent to create those sets of facts in the future. Creating these shadow IT systems, all you're going to need is, you know, a a Dropbox account or a Gmail address in a dream, and you are off to the races creating some sort of shadow IT system that an internal controls function might not be able to catch. Um, that's only going to get easier in the future, but clearly the SEC is finding people anyways because they find Polycom for it. 
Um, so how would you start to think about that? And I came up with a couple of probably uh, good practices that compliance officers would want to think about. But fundamentally, the nature of what Polycom did and the fact that this could get a penalty, like those things aren't going to go away. So let's look at the problem full on. Matt, uh, there was one sentence in your blog post that really struck me, which encapsulated uh, the entire set of issues that we have been talking about and hopefully we'll talking about it. And, and it was buried in the middle end, but I just want to read it because I found it uh, extraordinarily enlightening. And it's under the section which starts with uh, starting with accounting policies. And then you say, quote, understand the rules that govern how discounts, coupons, rebates, and sales devices circulate among your company distributors and end-using customers, end quote. And the reason I found that sentence so powerful was that it articulated the multiple ways and multiple types of pots of money that could be created in the distributor model that are perhaps not present in other models, whether that be a sales agent model or an internal employee as your primary sales force model. And I don't think many compliance practitioners have really focused on those elements as much as some of the elements in the other sales models we typically see. Uh, I think that's true. And I think that you probably don't focus on it for a couple of reasons. It's, it can be hard. Uh, in the Polycom case, for example, I know that Polycom sold its equipment in China, sold it to distributors, who then sold it to resellers, who then sold it to the end customers. Um, now, the the actual scam was that the distributor would ask for a discount from Polycom, which would be given to the distributor, but then it would not be passed along to the end customer two or three more steps down the chain. Uh, that became the slush fund to create a bribe for the end customer and all of that fun stuff. But, you know, even if you just want to think, well, who is Polycom's customer actually in China? Because there are at least three or four different links in that chain, Polycom, distributor, reseller, customer. Uh, it can be hard to figure out. It's a very accounting heavy sort of a question. I would point out, however, that in the effectiveness guidelines that the Justice Department put out in 2017, they specifically said in an effective compliance program, the company is aware of all of these payment processes, no matter how convoluted they may be, and you can follow the math and follow the money all the way through. And um, so you have to do that if you want to say that you have an effective compliance program. Uh, the other case that I had mentioned before um, with Sanofi in September, um, that was one where I thought it was very applicable to what we're talking about because in the Sanofi case, uh, the disc the distributor could get credit discounts, or I think they were called credit coupons. No, I'm sorry, wait, credit notes. But what was a credit note? It was essentially a IOU that the Sanofi and the distributor would pass back and forth. You know, the, the distributor might get a credit note of thirty dollars, so that when the credit the distributor actually owed Sanofi a hundred, well. I'll give you 70 plus the credit note. You know, you're floating around with these credit notes and all this terminology. But the key there is that the credit note could be converted into cash. And so when I say it starts with the accounting controls, anything that exists in this flow chart of procedure, any step on the chart that says could be converted into cash, like clamp down on that with iron manacles that you want to control that as heavily as possible I'm not even necessarily sure why 
you would maybe want something to be converted into cash. You know, that's a valid question to ask. Do we really need this? But like that to me was the big red flag. This this credit note, this IOU, this discount, this whatever it is converted into cash, like that's we all know where the cash then goes. And that's exactly what happened with Sanofi is that it went to bribes, I think, in the Middle East or Kazakhstan or maybe both. Uh, but those kind of things, know the accounting procedures, know the policies, know how it works, and then know what the controls are and why you have the controls you have or why you don't have certain controls, especially around anything that that becomes cash or could become cash. So you said something in there, Matt, uh, along the lines of, uh, I guess you ended with it, which is, uh, you circled back to it, if something can become cash, uh, why do you have that? Is there a business reason for doing it? Is, is there a justifiable business reason? Is it because that's the way we've always done things? Is it because in a, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, you needed to have something that you could convert easily to cash? And the business processes have changed now such that when you do have the ability to easily convert something to cash, it heightens the risk for corruption. It heightens the risk for fraud or embezzlement, uh, so that uh, you really should clamp down on that and even perhaps do, do, uh, give a, um, do away with the ability to readily turn something into cash uh, as a business process. Yeah. And, you know, the, this just popped into my head now, but we should note that in at least several countries now, um, I think in Israel and I think maybe Norway or one of the Scandinavian countries there, they're clearly moving away from cash is a necessary thing at all. Uh, they just want entirely all credits and debits, uh, especially for anything over, say, five hundred or a thousand dollars. Where, you know, what is our business justification for turning something into cash? Well, in certain countries, they're moving to a law where there isn't going to be any justification for cash. Um, so, you know, you need to start thinking through uh, why is that. But you know, it gets back to what you say, Tom, about document, 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 like. If you have a reason to convert something into cash, you better well have documentation that it's rock-solid good reason. Certainly with the Polycom case, uh, it was not clear to me from either Sanofi or the Striker enforcement action is the other one involving distributors in uh, the fall of 2018, whether or not there uh, had been um, – whether or not the people overseeing the discounts for the China business unit distributors really understood the business model and understood the reasons uh, for the discount. And uh, I really appreciated your point near the end of the blog where you really focused on the human element mm-hmm. and you focused on uh, uh, auditor skepticism, but you also focused on this, does it make sense? Uh, does your gut tell you something's wrong? And we had a Enforcement action in the the uh, Clarion year of 2015, I think it was, uh, where we had um, uh, Johnson Controls, where the internal audit function simply couldn't understand the Chinese business unit's financial operations. And if you can't understand or you won't understand a foreign business unit's operations, uh, either that business unit's operations need to change or you need to bring in some new people to to take a look at it. There is absolutely no excuse for that. No, there is not. And um, I'm going to take a diversion here away from FCPA for a moment to pick up on that point. Um, At the end of December, the SEC also settled accounting 
irregularity charges with Hertz, the car rental people. Um, Hertz, this was not an FCPA case, but they had all sorts of funny numbers and sloppy accounting practices. But the reason it went on for so long was because the internal audit function at Hertz was inadequate to the task of understanding what was going on with the financial controls. And the SEC called that out in the Hertz settlement. Um, and it just proves the point that if your internal audit team is not up to the task of understanding the financial controls, that unto itself, the SEC will frown upon it in a most severe way should the worst happen, whether it's FCPA or financial improprieties um, or anything else like that. But you know, there is a skills and talent question here that needs to be brought to bear. Um, the only other point that I had raised in my blog post that I wanted to squeak in there was um, in the Polycom case in particular, we saw that the China executives would grant these discounts to the distributors, which would then be used to fund bribes. But they had to uh, report those discounts and why the business justification was in Polycom's central accounting system. And inevitably, the justification was competition. Competition, competition, competition over and over again. Now, I am not opposed to granting someone a discount in a competitive environment. I get that is the way the world works. But do your accounting policies, your internal control and your documentation policies require enough evidence and rationale and documentation beyond just competition so that each request for it is unique and then can be evaluated onto its own. Um, you know, certainly anybody from the outside, it would look like if you just keep spouting the same simple reason over and over again, it might look like something is fishy. If your employees are sufficiently skeptical, if they've been trained to be skeptical, even with their good friends in the sales department, because you know, Frank or Susan or whoever, they would never do that. Well, you still have to be skeptical anyways, but you can't be sufficiently skeptical if you don't also have enough raw material of evidence and documentation to look and say something here seems a little bit off. Um, so it's kind of a, a two-sided coin there. You need to provide enough evidence, demand more evidence, so that basically, as I say in the post, if somebody's going to commit fraud, make them work for it. Make them really work and hard <laughs> to come up with all of the evidence that's going to be totally bogus. But don't just let them get away with, you know, skating by saying competition. And, of course, that's bogus. But, uh, well, all right, fine. And it all goes away. Um, you know, you have to make them work for it by setting stringent documentation requirements because that will support the skeptical employees who will be trying to fish out whether there's a, a rat in the, the mix or not. Matt, there's one other thing your blog post and the uh, Polycom FCPA enforcement action uh, really drove home to me that I wanted to perhaps get your observation on, and it's the following, that uh, over the past year, I've noticed the SEC enforcement actions almost uniformly in the form of a cease and desist order are very detailed on the bribery schemes, uh, which... Uh, allow people like you and me and compliance practitioners reading them, I think, to, to get a very good sense of what lessons can be drawn from these in terms of the bribery schemes used. Um, have you uh, noticed that at all, or do you think the SEC's kind of been doing this all along and I'm just waking up to it? I have to admit, I don't know. Um, I do appreciate that, at least for the last year or two and probably further back, 
they have been giving some pretty good detail about how these schemes can come to pass. Um, exactly why are they doing this? I Honestly, I don't know. But other than I think maybe to help compliance professionals understand how these things work, what the SEC's expectations are around what you should know for internal controls and policies. You, the sort of the, the corporate you, the whole company has to know this, whether it's the internal audit executive, the controller, or the ethics and compliance officer. To a certain extent, I don't think the SEC would necessarily care so long as the company can catch it and prevent it. But when companies are not, they are laying out in painful detail how the scam actually worked, um, possibly to help all of the lawyers out there uh, who are often chief compliance officers and who might not be totally versed in accounting and internal control, help you understand what you should know um, and help you either learn it yourself or learn what questions to ask internal audit or maybe an external advisor if you have roped them in. But you're going to need to know what questions to ask, whether it's you or somebody you bring in and you explain a situation to them. But we're going to have to learn this stuff because, as I say with um, Polycom and the shadow IT, like the ability to create fraud, I think, is going to increase in the future. There's, now, the ability to detect it is also going to increase. And, you know, we're going to have this race between, you know, are the fraudsters uh, faster than the anti-fraudsters and who's going to be back and forth. But um, you'll need to know this sort of stuff, I think, more than in the past. Well, Matt, this has been a fascinating exploration. Uh, using your blog post is really a jumping off point. Um, we've been talking about Mag's, Matt's blog, Distributors, FCPA, and Internal Compliance Lessons for Anti-Bribery and, and Corruption Programs that was up in uh, NAVEX's Ethics and Compliance Matters blog. Matt, I can't wait to see what comes up next week. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions on this podcast, you can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. We both blogged on the Polycom case, and those links are in today's show notes. I hope you'll join us again next week for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.